Ten years ago, if you wanted to build software, you probably needed to know how to write code. Today, the line between technical and non-technical people is blurring. Website designers can make a living building sites for people on WordPress or Squarespace without having to know how to write code. Salesforce integration experts can help a sales team set up their complicated sales pipeline without having to know how to write code. Shopify experts can set up an e-commerce store to your exact specifications without having to know how to write code. WordPress and Squarespace and Salesforce and Shopify, these are all fantastic services, but they're not compatible with each other. I can't install a WordPress plugin on Salesforce. Now imagine this from the point of view of plugin creators. Plugin creators make easy ways to integrate different pieces of software together. Take PayPal as an example. PayPal wants to make it easy for software builders to integrate with their API. One way that PayPal does this is with a plugin that is a button that says, Pay with PayPal. If I'm a developer at PayPal and I'm building a button that people should easily be able to put on their web page so that anybody can pay with PayPal by just clicking a button, I have to create a button that is compatible with WordPress and Squarespace and Wix and Weebly and GoDaddy and Blogger and all the other website builders that I might want to integrate with. In 2014, Zach Bloom started a company called Eager. Eager was a cloud app marketplace which allowed app developers to make flexible plugins that non-technical users could drag and drop onto their site without any technical expertise. Unfortunately, in order for these non-technical users to add any apps from the Eager marketplace to their web page, they had to drop in a line of JavaScript to their application. And that's unfortunately a significant hurdle for a non-technical user. Eager was a useful distribution mechanism for plugin developers because Eager allowed these plugin developers to write a plugin once and get distributed to multiple plugin marketplaces. So if you were writing that that PayPal button for the Eager app marketplace, you would just write it once on Eager and Eager would figure out a way to distribute it onto the WordPress plugin site and the Squarespace plugin platform and and Wix plugin platform, and all the different plugin platforms. So Eager actually did build uh, a successful distribution model, but it was not widely used as a way for non-technical users to directly drag and drop plugins onto their websites. And the question was, how do you build a marketplace for non-technical users to be able to add plugins to any website? without forcing this non-technical user to write code? How do you make editing and building a website as easy as a WYSIWYG editor, the what-you-see-is-what-you-get editors? And this is kind of hard because, I mean, you look at the business of Wix and Squarespace and WordPress. These are giant businesses, and the reason there's a bunch of different website builders is because they don't really play nice together, and you have to create this sort of walled garden to make it easier for these non-technical users to build their websites. But Zach really wanted to build this marketplace that would be interoperable and would be fairly open. And one way that you can actually deploy code to an app without having to uh, insert a blob of JavaScript is to uh, intercept the page at the CDN level. 
So the CDN turns out to be a perfect distribution platform for these kinds of apps like the PayPal button, the, this plugin idea. Because if you're even if you're a non-technical user, you have to integrate with a CDN oftentimes you, because the CDN is going to be the content distribution network that gives your app global scalability and reliability and responsiveness. So when these users integrate with a CDN, the CDN could do the work of inserting that blob of JavaScript that allows the plugins to be added to that user's web page. And because of the opportunity for the integration between a plugin marketplace and a CDN, Eager was acquired by Cloudflare, and Eager became Cloudflare Apps. Zach Bloom joins the show today to discuss the motivations for his company, the engineering behind building a cloud app marketplace, and the acquisition process for his company, Eager. It was a pretty interesting show because of the subtlety of what was difficult about making his marketplace work, and I think it just goes to show why marketplaces are so difficult to build. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Zach Bloom is an engineering manager at Cloudflare. Zach, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Jeff. You started a company in 2014 called Eager. And the goal was to make it easy to integrate apps into websites. And then there's a lot more complexity beyond that simple mission of easily integrating apps into websites. But describe that problem in more detail. What does yeah. that actually mean, integrating apps into a website? I was hoping you knew. I don't. <laughs> no, um, this is a great, it's a great question. I mean, the backstory of it, of Eager itself, and kind of how my co-founder Adam and I came to start that company, is we were working at HubSpot in Boston, which is a company that people have kind of heard of now, but hadn't necessarily heard of at the time. And when we were working at HubSpot, we started a team called the Open Source Team. And all we did on that team all day was build open source projects that we thought would be valuable inside HubSpot and that we could release and kind of Im improve the way that people th thought of this Boston tech company in the JavaScript community predominantly. And so we were pretty successful at that. We were able to release a lot of great projects that gave a lot of people value and they got integrated into Twitter Bootstrap and tons and tons of stars on GitHub and all of that stuff that's great for developers. But we eventually realized that no matter how many people saw this on Hacker News, the vast majority of websites, 99% of websites, are not ran by technical people. They're not ran by people who have the capability to copy-paste this embed code somewhere in your HTML. And they're not going to find anything that we do on GitHub. So we were kind of playing to a home team. And we wanted to answer the question of, could we find a way to make all of these open source projects that we built and that other people built, and also paid projects, SaaS projects, tools that make websites and companies better, accessible to all the people who aren't technical enough to install them. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that that's so cool is when you start thinking about it, you realize that the way a lot of these SaaS companies live right now, and even, and I say right now, because it's still for the most part true, is kind of mobile apps before the iPhone, where if you want to get something installed, you need someone who's pretty technical. They need to know, you know, in that case, how to like use the JDK or something like that. And if you want to run one of these companies, you need a really big sales and marketing team. And you need to spend years. You know, imagine starting a new analytics company right now that was going to compete with Google Analytics and how many years of grind that would take. 
because just getting someone to get that embed code installed is such a technical task. And the people you're selling to aren't necessarily technical, they're business owners. We wanted to kind of square that circle. So we wanted to build an app store where you could install things being not technical onto your website and you could preview them and decide that this is what you like and configure all the options and eventually register an account and get it installed on your site without knowing any of the technical stuff that we all live in every day. Well, the phenomenon that you're referring to where you have people who are, quote, non-technical being in charge of much of the operations and even deployment of software, I saw this last week. I was at Dreamforce, and I, I didn't know much about the Salesforce ecosystem. But Salesforce is an example where you have people doing very complex development and integration that is at, at a slightly higher level of abstraction than software engineers. And you, you also see this with complex WordPress deployments. People, people configure these very unique WordPress apps out of plugins, and there's this huge plugin ecosystem. So you have this, this line between non-technical people and technical people that begins to blur as it becomes easier to compose different applications together without writing any lines of code. What was the level of technical expertise that you were trying to help with Eager, Eager IO? Yeah. And I think what you describe is kind of fundamentally true, and it's going to continue being true, which is the level of complexity that is possible, the things that you can accomplish without being technical, has been getting continuously better. So it used to be that if you wanted to have a website, you needed to know HTML. And then, you know, we, we live in a world with a million different CMS tools now. And we, we currently live in a world where if you want to use, you know, TensorFlow to, to uh, uh, do some machine learning, you need to be technical. But pretty soon we're going to be in an era when non-technical people can do that, too. And we need engineers to instead be thinking about the next wave of complexity. And so you do kind of want to live in a world where more and more power is pushed down to be almost a commodity so that every store you shop from can give you really good recommendations, not just Amazon.com, right? We want all this technology to be accessible to everyone. And so we have to really think consciously about how we can engineer ourselves out of a job and go focus on the new things and let people experience the things that we figured out yesterday and last year on a commodity basis, on a way that they can use without having to be super technical and live in that world all the time. In saying, our goal was always to move you know, I would say down market, but down market can mean a lot of different things to move towards people who are less technical, because there will always be a pyramid, there will always be more people with less knowledge than more, because every day that you show up to work, and you learn something, you become more knowledgeable than a big set of people that didn't have that experience that day. And so we're all slowly rising up this pyramid, and there's always more people at the bottom. And so when we first launched eager, there was kind of this fundamental flaw to it, really, which is, you had to install an embed code onto your website in order to never have to do that again. Hmm. And that was not an ideal experience, right? That was a convenient experience for people who are sort of technical or technical enough. But we had to invest a lot of energy and effort to try to slide down that pyramid. How do we build WordPress plugins? How do we make it so that you can take any one of these apps that someone had built and package it for other app stores so we can leverage how easy they make it to install something to make it easy to install our things? And then eventually this question that I think we'll touch on later, which is, how can we partner with platforms that make it very, very, very easy to install this stuff because they live at a little bit of a different place in the, in the request stack? And obviously, I'm talking about Cloudflare. Mm, indeed. 
Yes, you, we'll get into that. You were eventually acquired by Cloudflare and Eager became Cloudflare Apps. So prior to the acquisition, it was the Eager IO App Store. To help people understand what we're talking about here, can you give a few examples of the apps from Eager that people use to integrate into their own websites? Absolutely. So a big category is anything that would have traditionally you, you been installed with like a tag manager that people have heard of. So analytics, you know, you can certainly install analytics, but you also get a lot of visual stuff on the page. So maybe you want to collect people's email addresses. You have a business and you think it would be great to be able to build an email list. Okay, great. There are many, you know, you can put a bar at the top, you can put a bar in the corner, you can, you know, do many different things to start building that email list and growing your business. Maybe you want to make your website faster. Okay, great. You can install a tool that's going to use JavaScript, kind of like what people do with Rails, with TurboLinks, to accelerate the speed that your that your page is going to operate at. Or maybe you want all of your images to go through a CDN. Okay, great. You can install JavaScript. It's going to use mutation observers to swap out URLs for your images and point them at a CDN instead. So a lot of it was trying to push the limits of what JavaScript was capable of in the browser, because that was kind of the sandbox that we had to play in at the time. Mm. And then a lot of it was installing existing SaaS tools, you know, live chat, things like that, that people are aware of and they're familiar with, but we just want to make incredibly easy to install. So I think one way of looking at these is like components. So if you're a React or a Vue.js or an Angular developer, there's this huge library of components where you can go to GitHub and find a component and you can... Uh, install it using npm and you can use it in your app and it's it's pretty cool if you're a developer you just have this huge market of components well it's not even a market because it's all free with open source Uh, but these are framework specific these are only accessible to developers and also even developers it's kind of hard to charge for this code because it's open source stuff so with your app marketplace, it, it seems like this is a way for non-technical people to have access to the same diversity of components that we have access to as developers with all the open source stuff, but also gives developers a a way to have a marketplace for the components that they write and, and also have a, a, a framework agnostic marketplace where, you know, if, if I'm install if I want to install a PayPal button on my website. Uh, I don't have to worry if it's if it's written in React or Vue or Angular. Uh, it, the marketplace that you built with Eager just allows people to install it a little bit more seamlessly. Am I describing things correctly? Yeah, you are, and and you're kind of describing one of those things that we had to do in order to make it accessible to non-technical people, because it wasn't just enough that you can install this. A lot of the stuff has to be placed at a certain location on the page. So we had to write a lot of code to figure out where those locations were when the page initially loaded, figure out how you can place something in the preview, figure out how at runtime we're actually going to find that same location on the page. Because we do want to let people do something like place a, a PayPal button and have it make sense to someone who isn't technical enough to understand how their you know, view or React is rendering, right? Or how their regular old plain JavaScript jQuery website is, is rendering. The charging for it thing, I think, is super, super important, at least to me, because my real dream with Eager was always that a developer in his or her basement would write the next new great tool that solves some real problem and would get it on a million websites and would make a million dollars the next day. 
that you could start a business. And this was an actual app store, just like the Apple app store that moved, you know, a billion dollars through it, that created businesses that allowed people to totally change the way that they work. Because right now, if you want to do that, if you want to build tools for people to make websites better and solve business problems for people, or solve accessibility problems or solve speed problems, you kind of have to start a giant company. And most of that company is going to be devoted to convincing people that what you built makes sense. And so if we can do that, you know, kind of in the way that Amazon has gotten rid of a lot of that because you have reviews and you have ratings and you have social proof and you have a consistent installation or buying experience in the analogy, we can suddenly make it so that developers have the ability to make a living building the stuff that makes companies better. And that would be very, very cool. Hmm. The interface on eager what became cloudflare apps it allows the user to see how components are going to appear on their website so if i want to put a paypal button on my page i can put in softwaredaily.com and softwaredaily.com gets displayed in an iframe uh, on the right side right hand side of the page and then i can just click on the place in the iframe page where I want that PayPal button to appear. This is similar to the WYSIWYG, uh, the what you see is what you get editor that I've used with Squarespace or WordPress. Uh, these sites are beloved by uh, non-technical people for building their, their websites. So if I'm inserting a PayPal button into my page with the the app building tool that you've built what is what's going on there like what is where is the code getting inserted and is it accessing paypal apis doesn't paypal offer this this kind of thing where i can insert a paypal button or i guess describe using the paypal button app as an example you know how how does somebody add that functionality to their page so obviously, you know, when we talk about the PayPal button, what you're looking to do is you have a website, maybe it's for your soccer team, and you want a way of raising money, donations. Or maybe you have a website that sells home-baked cookies, and you want a way of actually charging people for it. That's pretty low impact. You know, you don't need to set up all of Shopify or anything like that. You just need someone to be able to charge, and you need to get an email when they pay you, right? And so being able to just place a PayPal button below the picture of a cookie is actually a pretty good, simple solution to that the way you described the preview experience was really great. You have options on the left, and then you have a preview of the actual user's website with this app installed on it on the right in an iframe, as you said. But it, that kind of masks a somewhat hilarious amount of complexity. Because on the left, these options have to be defined by the app creator somehow. So we use JSON schema, which is a open source format for essentially defining a form or defining a data format in JSON. One, to do that, you have to have all sorts of different fields that you support in order to support everything that apps want to do, including the ability to, for example, OAuth into an account with PayPal, right? So you already have a PayPal account, or maybe you need to register one. When you're installing this app, you need to be able to OAuth into that account. So that's a whole nother input type that encodes the idea of an account and that fact that someone's logged in. Once you have all of that on the left, you often need the ability for the app creator to manipulate those options as people pick things. So for example, maybe you're going to log into your PayPal account and then it wants to show you a dropdown of which bank account you want the money to go to. So then you, you need this whole hooks feature, which is like a bi-directional webhook where we can go out to your server and say, hey, they just fired this event. They just changed this option. 
They just decided they want to install. Do you want to change any of these options or save anything on your end or have us save anything that will end up on the client? So that's a whole nother, you know, kind of bucket of complexity. And then on the right, when you talk about an iframe, well, you can't just iframe most websites because a lot of them have frame blocking JavaScript. A lot of them use X frame options, either as a header or as a meta tag. A lot of them don't support HTTPS. And so if you want your outer frame, you want your website, you want Cloudflare apps to support HTTPS, which obviously we do, then you can't have any iframe inside of it that isn't HTTPS. So you have to be able to do that kind of rewriting. And so to do that, you're rewriting all of the URLs. And then you need to go through the process of figuring out how to rewrite all the URLs in such a way that all the relative links still work and all the absolute links still work. And then you remember that base tags are a thing. And then you remember that URLs can, you know, host names can only be 254 characters on Internet Explorer. And you go through, a, you know, or, or at least I went through or we went through tremendous list of how can we actually make it so that you can see this preview and that it will actually work in the way that we need. Hmm. Once you get all of that, the actual inclusion isn't that complicated. With the old eager way of doing it, what we would do is bundle all of your JavaScript and all of your CSS into two files. One that we were going to load in the head of the page and then one that it would asynchronously load in the body. So an app could say, I have this JavaScript for the head, and then I have this JavaScript CSS for the, for the body. And that single initial JavaScript file you, you loaded would include the head and would trigger the loading of the body. And we would also include a little bit of JavaScript to give you some sort of reasonable API as an app developer that made sense. In the Cloudflare apps world, we still do that, but we have the ability to serve all of that JavaScript from your original domain because we control you know, the edge, we control your actual domain. We have a lot of, we have a lot more capability than we had before. And then we also have the capability to allow apps to do a bunch of stuff that aren't just JavaScript in the browser, which, which we can definitely talk more about too. So let's say I am a non-technical user who has built a website. You know, there are different pl ways I could build a website. And I imagine that you wanted to accommodate those different ones when you were building out eager. I mean, this is the obvious problem, but I'd love to hear how you solved it, is you need to basically inject code into these web pages that people have, and you need to be able to inject that code into all kinds of different places because you want to make it really easy for people to configure where they are dropping the PayPal button on their website. You want to turn everybody's website into a WYSIWYG where you can just click and drag stuff. So how do you get the code that you need injected into the user's website when it's hosted on a place that it that you do not control yeah and so a lot of this is iterative right you start with this implementation that maybe takes you three days and you think oh great i took care of that that is done and then you spend the rest of your life effectively either fixing bugs or re-implementing it you know and by the time you get to the third time you've done it it maybe is halfway decent so Initially, the way that it would work is we would use cookies to serve a different version of this if you were inside the preview. So you would get a special version that we were dynamically generating that would include all of your options. And then we realized, you know what? People really want to see changes to their options much faster than it takes to reload a web page and regenerate this file. So we had to build a whole way for changes in the app to run for changes on the left side, changes in that options area to dynamically change the app inside the website. So that's a bunch of post messaging and local storage to move between those two worlds. Then we have this problem of, okay, great, you can pick a location on the page, 
But it turns out the structure of pages change as they load. If you're using React or you're using Vue or you're doing any kind of modification, by the time the app loads, you, the structure of your page may have changed. And then this is a fun one. Different apps can change the structure of your page. So you could install three different apps and one could insert a DOM node right at the top of the page and change everywhere that we thought we were placing things. So we had to move to a two-pass placement system where when the page initially loads, we mark all the locations that we think are interesting, that we think we're going to place an app. And then we have those DOM nodes so that we can then actually place the apps in a deterministic way later on. That's another kind of dimension of things that has to be, thing that has to be figured out. In the world of Cloudflare, it's very similar, but we have the ability to control how that file gets served in the preview separate from how the actual website gets served. So in the preview, you're actually serving the website through a proxy that fixes all of these cookie issues. It fixes all of the X frame options issues and frame blocking and HTTPS and all the things that would prevent us from successfully iframing the site. And then it also injects a special version of the embed code that we use that we're going to dynamically generate every time with exactly what options you pick. So uh, some of those things I didn't quite understand. So if I let's just say I'm like a, a, a user and I'm using Cloudflare apps for the first time and my website is hosted on, let's say, HostGator or some some other random hosting site. Do I need to install some like a single JavaScript blob that will give uh, the Cloudflare apps access to my page? No, and this is the beauty of being a part of Cloudflare. Hmm. Cloudflare sits at the edge, you know, with 180 data centers around the world for over 7 million websites. So that's 7 million websites that requests travel through the Cloudflare network in order to get to the user. And that gives us the ability to give people a lot of security and a lot of reliability and protect them from attacks and handle their HTTPS for them. And it also gives us the ability to add any apps that they've installed. So all of a sudden, if you're one of those 7 million sites or you're interested in becoming one, you don't need to be technical at all, mm. which is, if we remember, it was the original dream. It was one of the reasons that we were so excited when we got the opportunity to join Cloudflare. So when you were just eager uh, and you were not part of Cloudflare, was that problem a little bit harder to solve? It didn't make any sense. We, we were telling people, hey, you're not technical enough to do this, but by the way, install a JavaScript embed code into the head of your HTML and then deploy, right? It made zero oh, sense. And we, man. again, we tried to square that circle a bunch of different ways in the way that you do in a startup where you want to solve problems. But we never really got to the point where I could confidently say to the person running that cookie shop or that soccer club, right. like, oh yeah, Eager's great. You should be using it. Like it's, you know, click, click, click. Like it didn't make any sense. But what about these? So, but some people, I imagine, were on WordPress or Squarespace or Wix, and WordPress, Squarespace, Wix. These website builders, some of them have app stores, and that's part of what makes them successful and configurable. Is because the app store is a layer of abstraction that gives the non-technical user the ability to configure their website. But I imagine that could also be a way for you to get a toehold into that market. You could have a WordPress app that is the eager marketplace, and then that installs mm -hmm. the JavaScript blob in a non-technical way. So I think you hit on two great points there. One is you can absolutely do that. You could absolutely create a App Store plugin. But one thing that we learned is that people don't install an App Store. <laughs> they don't know what an App Store is a thing. No one's ever heard of eager, right? So putting that on the store didn't do a lot. 
the thing that was more valuable actually was packaging individual apps as WordPress plugins. So we could go to companies and say, hey, you're going to end up building a plugin for WordPress and for Joomla and for Drupal and for all these other platforms. And that's going to be a giant pain. Build an eager app. And then we have a tool that will generate all of these plugins for you programmatically. And each of the, those plugins will have that live preview that we were talking about inside Joomla and inside Drupal and inside WordPress, which is something that those platforms don't necessarily support. Hmm. And so that was a pretty powerful pitch. And then, of course, once they installed that first Eager app, it, the first Eager plugin, it put a link on their sidebar that then took them to the App Store. So it then gave them the opportunity to install more things. And that was powerful. Another thing that is powerful, actually, is the fact that not every CMS has an App Store. So you're right that the, the Wixes of the world kind of have this problem. If not, if not solved, they at least have a solution that they're pretty happy with. But there's always an opportunity in the hundreds and thousands of other app stores, not app stores, sorry, hundreds of thousands of other, hundreds or thousands of other CMSs that exist in the world that don't have the infrastructure to build an app store. And so they would be interested mm. in partnering with an eager to suddenly get access to that without having oh. to do all of the boots on the ground work. So that's another way that those CMSs become an opportunity. Right. So you're talking about becoming a market, like a marketplace as a service to other CMS platforms. Like you could even imagine, we, you know, we were talking about Salesforce earlier. You could imagine in, in a world where, where Salesforce does not have a hundred million apps in the Salesforce ecosystem, if they wanted, if they, let's say, let's say some new, you know, app is starting to get popular. Like, let's say Airbnb, right? Like, let's say Airbnb decides they want to make it easier for hosts to set up their own website. Like, within Airbnb, you have a configurable website. Then they start to say, okay, but we also want to give these hosts the ability to add PayPal buttons to their to their Airbnb host pages because maybe they want to take money for their own services that we don't offer on Airbnb. Well, we'll just go to Eager and we'll build our Airbnb. We'll build an Airbnb app store by bootstrapping with with Eager. Is that is that the vision that you were kind of like leaning exactly. towards? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we had done a lot of the work to not just build the infrastructure, but also to collect the apps and nurture the app community. Mm -hmm. And so that meant we had something that these services would find valuable. You know, the services that aren't the handful of giant CMSs that have enough reach that they could consider building their mm -hmm. own. And that was actually, and this is a little bit of inside baseball, that was actually how we started talking to Cloudflare. It wasn't originally, hey, we would love to be acquired because we were running a startup and it was going fine. And, you know, like every startup, it had its ups and its downs, but we were having a good time. And we went to Cloudflare and said, you have 7 million sites. Would you be interested in having our hmm. app store integrated into Cloudflare? And then we started having those conversations and it turned out if we were a part of Cloudflare, we could make this app store do a whole lot more than we could if we didn't have that edge network. And that kind of changed everything. Yeah, and Cloudflare had actually been building their own apps marketplace, but I guess they were encountering their own set of problems. What was the Cloudflare apps world like before they met Eager? Yeah, so obviously, you know, people at Cloudflare are pretty smart. And they recognized all the way back in 2011, which was very early in the history of Cloudflare, that it would be valuable if people could install extra stuff onto their websites. We have this edge network. It can do anything to these websites, essentially. Why can't we let people install all sorts of valuable stuff? 
And so they built a version of this app store. But the problem with Cloudflare is it's super successful. And it's not just successful in that, you know, we, we have a few hundred or thousand enterprise customers that we have to keep happy. We have 7 million sites and we deal with over, you know, a trillion requests a month. And so there isn't a lot of available bandwidth within that, that company as it's scaling up to those numbers to continue iterating on this app store. And so that 2011 app store that did launch kind of stuck around and didn't get a ton of love or attention because the company was trying to figure out how do we process, you know, two petabytes of log files a day? And that was why it kind of made sense all the way in 2016 to say, oh, okay, maybe now that it's time, now that we have a little bit more resources, now that we have a little bit more breathing room, why don't we take another pass at this? You know, like I was saying, sometimes it takes the second or third approach at building something before it actually gets to a point that, that, that it starts working. Mm. Yeah, totally. So... As we've described, Cloudflare took an interest in Eager enough to acquire you. So what was that acquisition process like? I think that's a really good question because I don't think it's something that a lot of people, you know, you, you, you can read press releases and stuff like that, but you don't get a lot of visibility into how an acquisition works. And I've only ever been involved in one, so I've, I have limited visibility myself. But it's the biggest thing that I would say is it's meeting people and talking to them. And finding out if there's a meeting of the minds and if you can get along with these people and if they get along with you and you like the vision of the company and the people that you meet. So it's very similar to taking a job because you fundamentally are taking a job. You're taking a job at this new company and you're not just doing it for yourself, but you're doing it for all of the work, you know, that we would put three years of work into this. And so the fact that we were able to continue working on the same thing made a big difference. The fact that the people that we were going to be working with totally shared our vision, actually had more aggressive mm. vision than we did, made a huge difference. It's kind of a gradual courting process over multiple months where you figure out, okay, I like these people and maybe I want to work with these people and maybe working there isn't going to be horrible. It's going to be great. And in our case, fortunately, that's how it turned out. Obviously, everyone is not is not that lucky. When you are part of an acquisition does the acquirer typically make some kind of offer where the value of your acquisition price is going to be related to how your uh, acquired company performs uh, under the acquirer post-acquisition? Well, I don't think I can talk about a ton okay. of specifics. I think, yeah. <laughs> That's I, why I, I asked in generalities. Are, yeah, I know. I think there are options. Mm. The way that I've heard this described before is that it can be very dangerous to make deals like that because mm. there are always differences in perspective on whether something succeeded or not. And sometimes the company can change its mind about what it wants to mm. do. And you, it's dangerous for, for a billion-dollar company to be locked into these agreements where it's either kind of committed to accomplishing the specific thing or supporting this person and accomplishing the specific thing so that they can get personal money or the company has to bow out of that agreement and kind of put this person in a bad place. So if I was making suggestions to someone, I would suggest that, you know, you can do it based on time, you know, so you say like, you have to be committed to this company right. and we want you to stick around and you can decide how much stock is this person getting so that they really feel invested in the success of the company. But I personally wouldn't recommend to someone that they, that they kind of lock down in writing that in two years, this company is still going to be interested in accomplishing some specific thing. And if it isn't, I, the human being person, end up in a bad right. place. Like that, that, that can be kind of yeah. dangerous, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the performance based, uh, the the you know, the having to put yourself in a situation where your acquisition is going to perform well, and that's the only scenario where you're going to get compensated for that acquisition, is a dangerous thing to do because the intentions of the company might change, other things might change, and it's just circumstances might occur where the acquisition doesn't end up being positive sum, but you don't want to take the brunt of that because you you know you give up your your baby, you give up the acquisition that you've worked hard for and you want to guarantee some level of compensation for that. So that's that's a useful piece of advice. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you don't really want a whole bunch of people running around this company only interested in their own their own, right. you know, deal. That's closing, true. Right. So you want all these people to care about the success of the entire company. And that to me is easier to do when they don't have a huge like payday or something tied to their particular little thing going a particular certain way, you know, if if it turns out that's actually not what's best for this whole company mm-hmm. in general. So before you you were acquired and you were on your own as a startup and you were kind of encountering these marketplace problems and marketplace problems in, in a variety of ways. One, you were having trouble identifying who is the customer of Eager. You want to have this app store for non-technical users but you had an issue of overcoming the technical barrier of inserting that first blob of JavaScript that allows you to use the Eager App Store. And I imagine that also led to it being somewhat difficult to sell the marketplace to developers to build on top of Eager. So because, you know, those developers won't be interested in getting distribution, you know, for an app store that was that was usable to people. But it, but I guess you were able to start solving those problems with the ideas around, okay, becoming this plug-and-play marketplace for CMSs that didn't have their own marketplace. Can you talk about some of the difficulties of building a marketplace for developers? I mean, isn't it a great question? Because you do have two sides. You know, if you could, you know, the situation we're in right now where we get to go to developers, hey, we have 7 million sites is is pretty good you know the developer hears that and they go okay i can build something here and someone's going to install it hopefully a lot of people are going to install it and if what i build is good it's going to get traction but when you have hundreds of sites and then thousands of sites there just is so much less in volume so many less eyes so many less dollars that are available and so how do you convince a developer that they want to build this and so one way that we answer that is to give them a lot of these other extra capabilities. Oh, okay, you can actually have a WordPress plugin. And oh, that live preview, you can you know send anyone to the live preview you want with any URL and they're just gonna see your service. And we built an entire way for you to take that live preview and embed it into your site. So it's, oh, okay, you're gonna build an eager app. Well, now your site, your landing page gets live preview. And you have install buttons that anyone can click and get dropped into an eager preview and they can try it live on their site before they install anything. So it's trying to run around and do a lot of build a lot. And one of the reasons that we built a lot is because my co-founder and I are engineers and there's always going to be this tendency to use the hammer that you're, that you're comfortable with. And so in general, I think we tried to solve these problems with engineering. I think there are also equally good solutions, maybe better solutions with marketing and with developer evangelism and going to conferences and going to meetups and, explaining and exactly why this is a good idea and why people should get involved Mm. would you know we did some of that as well obviously but 
that is another really powerful way. You know, one of the kind of fundamental things that I think I learned in doing this was there's a hundred different ways to be successful and you only need one. And the one that you pick is usually going to be defined more by your resources than by what is perfect or ideal or optimal, Mm. you know? So if you're really good at writing, then the solution is probably going to be to write. And if you're really good at engineering, then you can probably find decent solutions that touch on engineering. Mm. Another answer, because we only talked that only, you know, I know I'm, 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 I know I'm talking a mile a minute, but that was only one side, which was the developer side. On the user side, we really had to lean into the idea that people don't install an app store. They install an app. So we had to make it so that the view pages of apps were landing pages, were did a really good job of explaining what this app was and why it was valuable and took you through the entire flow of previewing the app and letting you pick all of your options and customize it exactly the way that you wanted before we asked you to actually install anything. The original eager homepage actually was here, copy paste this embed code into your, into your HTML. And it was a super fun little engineering challenge because we were, you know, generating keys on the client and then we were signing them with an HMAC so we could trust that it was really you later. And then you were able to grab that code immediately and just drop it into your site without even registering. And we would detect that it was a new code we hadn't seen and help you register then. And it was all very cool. But it was kind of useless because that's not what people actually wanted to do. They didn't want to install an app store. What they wanted was, oh, I want pace, you know, a progress bar for my website. So people feel like my website's faster. Okay, great. Let's show you the preview of pace. Let's let you get it customized. Let's get it exactly how you want on your live website. And then maybe we'll start talking about dropping an embed code somewhere or installing a plugin. So you have this this app store that now has liquidity. It now has adoption under the auspices of Cloudflare. And so I imagine it becomes more of an issue to control that distribution because you don't want somebody to launch an app on the Cloudflare app store that is a well-disguised piece of malware on their website. You don't want somebody to think they're installing a PayPal button but it's actually a PayPal button that mines Bitcoin in the background. <laughs> How do you vet yeah. the apps that people are distributing on the Cloudflare app marketplace? Yeah, and, I, and you're absolutely right that this became much more important post-acquisition because Cloudflare is a security company, and it takes the security <laughs> of, its, of its users very, 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 very seriously, I can tell you. And we become a much bigger target intrinsically when people see that there's more volume. You know, it's not really a lot of fun to put malware onto an app store that is, is not on that many websites. But all of a sudden, when it's available on 7 million websites, people want to attack that. So one part of this problem is technical, where how can we sandbox apps? How can we try to limit the exposure that they have or detect when they're doing something that's, that's wrong? How can we validate statically that this code is not, you know, it's, it's very possible for us to get a general idea of what DOM API something is using, for example. And then a big part of it is human. One of the things that we did, you know, you asked about the kind of logistics of an acquisition. And, and one of the funny parts about an acquisition is you have this kind of lull where you know you're probably not going to keep operating as an individual company, but you haven't signed any paperwork yet. And during that lull, th- what we ended up doing was actually building an app moderation tool which is 
a lot like, you know, GitHub, where our app moderators get a queue of apps that, that get assigned to them and they can look at each diff and they can see how the code has changed and they can look at the preview and make sure that it makes sense. And we look at every line of code and we rebuild any project that wants to distribute uh, minified or packaged code. You know, we also minify the code ourselves, but if someone wants to obfuscate their code in some way, then we have to validate that that build actually starts with the code that we think it starts from. So it's similar to the Apple App Store, actually, which obviously is an inspiration for us. It's a combination of limiting the exposure through controlling the APIs, statically validating and dynamically validating that the app is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and then having human beings actually look at every line of code that every app is is trying to do and look at it in an unminified, unobfuscated hmm. state. The inspiration regarding the iOS app store, I'd love to hear more about that. How do you, How would you contrast the iOS app store and the Android app store in terms of their governance? That's an interesting question. I think there's a obvious answer to this, which is people who use Android generally tend to think of things being more free. So the the bias is towards everything being available, letting the community decide what it wants, and even letting individuals decide what they want. So if you have an Android phone and you decide that you want the title bar to be a different color, you you have the control to do that. Whereas in iOS, you're meant to respect the bespoke experience that Johnny Ive has decided you should have. And that extends to the App Store a little bit because iOS obviously has a lot more editorial control over what apps show up and whether they're quote unquote good. You know, they want every app that you install to meet some baseline level of quality. Whereas on Android, they're more content to be the security police and let the, the market kind of decide what it wants to do. And so we had a question in doing this, as you can imagine, of where we want to live on that spectrum. And the thing we generally decided is the community should be able to make decisions about what apps are good and what are not, assuming two things. One, that the app is secure and safe, and it fundamentally does what it claims that it's going to do. So if you want to install an app that mines Bitcoin and it's called that, maybe we would think about letting you create a Bitcoin mine app. I don't know if we would actually, but maybe a bad example. <laughs> but it has to say that it's doing that. So the app absolutely cannot do anything that it's not claiming to do. And then two, the live preview has to be accurate. And that's one of the most powerful things that we have that's different than these other app stores. We can actually show you what this thing is going to be doing on your site before you install it. So that buys us a lot, actually, because it means, you know, you, you're allowed to say carpe diem a little bit more. Or not carpe diem, sorry. You're allowed to say let the buyer be mm. Also carpe diem, sure, why not? But more, <laughs> more importantly, you're allowed to say this person has seen a live preview of this on their actual website. They know what it's doing. They are therefore probably even more qualified than we would be to decide whether it's of a high quality or not. And then obviously we also had to build ratings and reviews. And we also had to build tools to give feedback to app developers. Because one of the things that we learned is app developers want to make their apps really good. But if they're not given feedback on what are, is wrong with them, they just don't do it, right? They don't have anything to do. They just kind of sit and, and hope the money will flow. And, and we hope the money will flow too. But it, like building any sort of business, it's a process and a back and forth. And so we had to build tools to funnel feedback from app installers and uninstallers in particular back to the app developer so that they could run their own app improvement cycle and turn their app into something that was really good as well. In the iOS app store, they have this constraint where if you do e-commerce payments, 
Apple takes like 30% or something of all purchases mm-hmm. that <laughs> go through the iPhone. It's it's kind of shameless, but not shameless. I mean, it creates a creates an environment that, I don't know, people take it seriously. People take e-commerce very seriously on there. Uh, but it also cripples the user experience of things like Audible and uh, Spotify. Yeah. Amazon? I think Spotify just charges you more. Spotify just charges you more. Okay, so you can sign up. It just charges you more on iOS. Yeah, I think so. What about Amazon? Can you you can buy stuff on Amazon? And it's just more expensive on on the iOS app. So I'm not the world scholar mm. in uh, in iOS, but I believe the way it works is buying physical products is not charged that thirty okay. percent tax, but buying digital products is fascinating. So when you look at the economics of the iOS app marketplace. And you think about the economics of the Cloudflare app marketplace. Obviously, you have the ability to let people make these apps that are five dollars a month, for example. Like you could, you know, if you've got uh, some app that users can buy for five dollars a month that gives them, you know, random cat pictures on their page. You know, it's like okay, maybe I want to oh, pay for that. You should build that. <laughs> I will build that. We um, actually already have. We actually already have that app. Okay. All right. That's great. You're way ahead of me. But there was a point where you could go to meow.voyage. This is, by the way, one of the many, I I told you our marketing strategy as a, as a company was, Hmm. was engineering. So one of the things that we did was actually register meow.voyage and wolf.voyage, W-O-O-F. And it would let you browse the internet with all the pictures replaced with cats or dogs (laughs) and, and show you which was more successful. And you could tweet that page with that modification made. Awesome. Well, okay, sorry. No, no, no. I, that sounds great. Uh, and I'm sure you had the the core, core competency to do that after building that the app viewer thing, the iframe. Yeah, it's all the same technology. Thing, same, Just same a more technology. More ridiculous purpose. Yeah. So, how are you thinking about the economics motivating people to to build these apps? Does Cloudflare take a cut from the the apps? Yeah, I, Cloudflare does, and the kind of logic behind it is talking to SaaS companies and talking to developers about how they actually make money now. Mm. Because it turns out that the way these businesses work is you do a bunch of engineering and you build this product and your costs of goods sold, the amount that it actually costs you to serve a customer is usually pretty low because you're just installing something on a website and software is cheap because we get computers to run it for us. The thing that costs a company a lot of money and really determines its economics are user acquisition. How much money am I paying to acquire a customer versus what is their lifetime value? And so the thing that we've tried to do conceptually with Cloudflare apps is make that cost of customer acquisition zero because you don't have to pay for marketing. We are here to help you do marketing and help you get on our blog and help you get on our Twitter account and make sure that your landing page is really great and get it on Product Hunt and do all of these things. That, that, and then you don't have to pay for a sales team generally unless you're building some enterprise app that's in you know multiple thousands of dollars a month because people are able to find and install this thing. And so when you do that, the economics of building this stuff changes so much that we just started with that same cut that you were talking about, 70-30, and we, we didn't know if we were going to be able to make that work hmm. or if people were going to be on board. And it isn't a problem because it turns out these companies are paying a lot more than 30% of their, of their revenue to acquire customers okay. as is. All right. Well, so I, I'd like to begin to to wrap up, but discussing 
the the future of this stuff. This is kind of a serverless world that we're moving towards, and and Cloudflare is uh, definitely representative of the this some of the serverless architectural changes we were talking a little bit about cloudflare workers before the show which is a way to get computation uh at the edge i mean cloudflare is this big system of caches and with cloudflare workers you've got this ability to deploy code that executes at the edge on those caches so for example you could do uh, you could do it. Have a system where you uh, route specific versions of a page from a CDN to specific types of users, and you have this programmable logic that will just be deployed to the edge, but not in a way where you're going to have to manage these uh, servers. So, what's the overlap between the serverless vision that comes with the Cloudflare workers side of things and the Cloudflare apps side of things that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's a great question because I think serverless is exactly the right word and I'll kind of attack it from both sides, which is Cloudflare service workers are exactly what you described. It's taking a service worker that you could write and run in the browser and instead running it on our edge. So that means you can intercept any request, intercept any response, change the response, change the headers. You can make sub requests to other resources that'll come through our cache so it'll those, that, those data files or HTML files will be in the cache everywhere and make a, literally any change to a request or response that you could possibly imagine, all written in JavaScript. And these service workers will run on our edge 180 places around the world on every request, whether you get you know, one request a second or you get a million requests a second. And so that's incredibly powerful. And it even that, I think, is kind of underselling it, though, because the truth is, Right now, if you want to deploy something on AWS, you have to think about availability zones and you have to think about regions and you have to decide, do I want this, you know, do I want to take the time to spin this up in Australia or not? And I think that's kind of an outdated model. I don't think people want to have to worry about where their code runs. I think everyone would kind of rather their code runs as close to the users as possible. So my personal vision is that people build entire applications in these service workers and they just can trust that these applications are going to run as close to the user as is possible. And we make the economics cheap enough that 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 makes sense, that you obviously are going to pick to run something in a Cloudflare service worker because it's going to be faster. It's going to be closer by the speed of light distance to your user. On the other side, you get apps. And the kind of mission of apps is to make all of Cloudflare a platform. So adding JavaScript and CSS to a page is great. But right now, we're, we're delivering the ability to add DNS records to a page. So you could you know, add a subdomain for someone. And then once we integrate workers, which is something that I think is going to happen at the beginning of next year, and so it's something that we're starting to talk to interested, interested app creators about right now, you're going to be able to install these apps that make any kind of modification to the user's page that you could imagine. So A-B testing. You, know, you want to deliver different variants of the page. Change the HTML based on which test group this person is in. All of a sudden, you can do that on the edge without any sort of sub request. That's super positive. You know, that's super exciting. You know, if you want to do that for SEO, you have to modify the HTML. It's the only way to do it. All of a sudden, you can build that. Literally, any type of app that you could imagine that wants to modify a page or add something to a page or modify a request, security. Maybe you want to block certain requests that look like bots. Okay, you can build that. You know, as long as you can write it in JavaScript. 
in you know under a megabyte of code or some some ridiculous limit you can run that on our edge and you can package it package it as an app and sell it to people or give it away for free all right well well zach it's uh, it's been great talking to you i'm really fascinated to see where cloudflare goes with uh, all the new developments and i wish you the best of luck great thank you so much i really appreciated this okay this is a great experience wonderful thank you wow 